Hi, and welcome to Unlimited, the podcast platform that gives voice to inspiring women, mothers, and experts from the Arab world and beyond to engage, empower, and drive growth. In this new episode of Unlimited Footpath series, we'll discuss about parenting and how to raise healthy, happy, and resilient children. No, it won't be a typical talk about motherhood. In fact, we start from the figure and the role of the father, as this episode is dedicated to Professor Kamel Abujaber, father of Dr. Linda Abujaber, who's joining us today from Jordan. Reach out to her to answer all the questions that we received from you through our social media channels, asking us to talk about how to deal with children with anxiety, mental health, bullying, cybersecurity, and much, much more. Why Dr. Linda? Well, she has been practicing medicine for over 30 years and is American board certified in general pediatrics, in pediatric infectious diseases, and in integrative and holistic medicine. She's also the author of two books dedicated to parenting and allergies, with a third one on anxiety just about to be published. The 360 degrees approach in a profession is a reflection of her personal journey as a caring daughter, loving wife, and working mothers of two very active children, which has led her to embrace a mission to empower moms and dads with evidence-based, easy-to-use, practical information, tips and skills to be the best version of themselves, to enjoy strong marriages and to confidently and happily raise these happy, healthy and resilient children. So grab your pen and paper and be ready to take note and then put her tips right into practice. Hello, Dr. Linda, and welcome to Unlimited. How do you do today? I'm doing very well, and I'm very, very honored that you're allowing me to uh, interact with you and with your uh, listeners because in this time of a lot of change in the world and a lot of uncertainty. And I hope that I can uh, maybe in my small way uh, uh, be a little guide to the moms who've asked a lot of questions and that everybody will come out from this feeling a little bit better, uh, more empowered and with more tips and skills that they can actually use in their everyday lives to start making a change from now. And that's exactly why we reached out to you now, because it's a time of great uncertainty, because you're a doctor, but also a mother, and a mother who lived between two very different continents, which makes your experience very relatable and your advice is very pragmatic. So tell us about your personal and professional journey from New York to Amman, then Florida and back to Jordan. Why and when did you decide to become a doctor? My dad is Jordanian and my mom is an Italian-American. They met in America while he was doing his PhD. And um, it seems when I was a very little girl, we lived in Lebanon for a couple of years, which I just recently found out from my 87-year-old mom. And we lived in uh, 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 America, basically in, in different places until I was seven years old. And my dad decided that he needed to come back because of what was going on in Palestine. And he wanted to be part of the solution rather than just talk about the problem. Um, so we came back when I was seven years old and I didn't speak any word of Arabic whatsoever. And it took me about six months to become fluent in Arabic. And it was a, it was a, a desperation thing. They put me in a school where everything was in Arabic except English. And I had to learn that. And because of that, I was bullied in school, you know? And so, you know, this question about bullying is, is very close to, to home. Um, but, it, you know, well, like they say, I hate the saying, but it's true. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Sure. And that's actually one of the reasons I became a doctor is I wanted to help little girls like me and little, I, we didn't have boys in our school. It was an all girls school. I never wanted them to feel that way ever. And I wanted to give them some, some tools because nobody around me, none of the adults around me at that time knew what to tell, to, what to say to me. And it actually created a lot of anxiety and depression in my life. But I decided to be a doctor when I was five years old. I had my adenoids and my tonsils out because I kept on having ear infections. And the doctor, it seems, told my mother I was going to go deaf. That really made me want to be a doctor. I want, I want this to be a happy world. I want this to be a healthy world. And I thought the best way to do that is through being a doctor. And I always wanted to be a pediatrician. I've always, I've always loved children. I was the person in parties that, you know, everybody, all the kids, you know, send them to Linda. She'll take care of them. We spend hours playing. And in fact, I think I'm still a big kid. 
You know, I still would prefer whenever you go, I go somewhere as I bring the kids and we start chatting and talking. So I finished my medical school here because I lived here and it was a lot more convenient than moving to America and learning a whole new lifestyle and, and being alone. So, but when I was done at that time, they didn't really have any really good training in pediatrics or anything in Jordan. And the, there was a war in, in Beirut, so I couldn't go to the AUB. So I went to the States. And in fact, I was the first foreign graduate ever to be accepted into Emory University. And I'm very, very proud of that because the next year after I went, our training was so good that they asked me to recommend a few of my classmates. And in fact, a few of them are now in the States and full professors because they, they, you know, we, uh, they came to Emory. And then I did my general pediatrics. And uh, then I decided I didn't want to be a specialist in just one thing. So I subspecialized in infectious diseases because about 80% of childhood care in the past used to be infectious diseases. And unfortunately, over the last 10 to 15 years, it's switched over to behavior issues and mental health issues and things like that. During the 91, uh, the war in the Gulf, I came back to Jordan and I worked as a consultant with UNICEF for a year uh, about coordinating food for the Iraqi uh, children and, and mothers. And I actually tried to get the, uh, you see, what people don't realize that there was an embargo on Jordan too. And the children started starving. And I went to all the different feed the children and all these different places. And everybody said, no, we're not going to help the, the Jordanians. They'll become reliant on help. And then they'll keep on wanting the dole and a handout. And I said, well, you don't know Arab mothers. Mm -hmm. And so that was another thing is why I'm doing what I'm doing is an empowered mother has tools and skills to find the solutions. When everybody says there's no answer and no solution, an empowered mom will find them. So um, I got married at that time and then I, I went back to the States and you know, typical Arab mom. And I was, uh, I was also kind of on the older end of the spectrum. So I had a child very soon after I got married and found out that I was, even though I was actually already board certified in pediatrics and in my second year of training in pediatric infectious diseases, I found that I was woefully unprepared to be a mom. It was like my son wouldn't breastfeed. He didn't want to sleep. He didn't want to eat. He got, I, I put him on formula and desperation after 10 days. He had acid reflux. He had food allergies. And of course, at that time, none of this was common. I mean, now you talk about it and everybody goes, yeah, yeah, my kid had this. In those days, everybody looked at me like I was some sort of crazy mom. And I, I, I started researching. I said, okay, in Western medicine, none of this exists, but I'm not crazy. My son is spitting up everything he's eating. He's unhappy all the time. His tummy is swollen up. He always has diarrhea. There's something going on. So I started getting interested in nutrition. And uh, I was using probiotics back in the early 90s before you could even find them. I had to teach mothers in the States how to ferment yogurt. You know, you have to go to the store, you get renin, you heat it to a certain temperature. And, and it, it was kind of, you know, crazy like that. And then um, because of my son's sleeping problem, I developed fibromyalgia, which they said was a, a, an anxiety depression problem. And I knew it wasn't. I did have very bad postpartum depression, but I didn't really realize that until I started writing about postpartum depression for mothers. I thought I was just, you know, a, a crazy old mom whose baby didn't breastfeed and stuff like that. You know, looking back, it, uh, it made me think, I don't want any mother to ever feel like that. I want moms and fathers because the father involvement in the baby's health is tremendously important. And with the social changes we have, mothers work. Mothers work nowadays, whether because they have to have two incomes or because they want to, because they're educated and they want to. And so the, the um, role of the dad has become increasingly more important because you know, nobody, you might have a, a woman working for you, you might have daycare, but nobody's going to love that kid the way the dad will. And if we can get the dads involved and, and, and attached, uh, we'll talk a little bit about attachment in a minute, but we, if we can get the dad attached, which is, um, you know, how he bonds with the baby from the time the mother is pregnant 
that shows that not only does it increase the health of the baby, it increases the health of the marriage. It actually decreases the amount of uh, problems in the marriage and divorce, which is one of the things I really want to stop. And it, it makes everybody happier and it makes sure that the dad is involved later on and kids become smarter actually IQ smarter. They're better readers. They're better problem solvers. They're socially uh, more, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Their emotional intelligence and social intelligence is higher. They're more willing to take risks. Because one of the questions the moms asked is, you know, independence versus, you know, uh, uh, just, you know, being overprotective. As moms, we're going to be overprotective. Don't do that. You might get hurt. And you know what the dad says? Go ahead. If you break your leg, you know, we'll just put it in the job scene and we'll be done. I mean, that's a little bit excessive, but that's actually where the father's energy comes in. And if any of your listeners are, are familiar with the yin yang sign in the black, which is the end, there's white. And in the white, which is the yang, is black. So everything is a balance. And so um, I uh, stayed in America till, um, till fairly recently, actually. Um, my husband died in 2011 of cancer. And again, that put another reason for me to, to, to teach parents how to be smart and proactive and empowered because I would get on the, the doctors would say there's nothing we can do. And I think there's got to be something we can do. People really, really need resources that they can rely on. And, you know, I have three American board certifications. One is in general pediatrics. One is in pediatric infectious diseases. And the third is in pediatric integrative and holistic medicine. And I also have the Jordanian board in pediatrics. I thought, well, I've been a mom. I've had, I've taken care of over 10,000 kids in my practice. I've, uh, I've written a couple of books. Who better? And I speak English and Arabic. I'm familiar with both cultures. I need to speak into this. So I, I kind of self-appointed myself because my kids are older to help parents find at least to be one source of reliable, not just factual information, but tips and skills that you can use as you raise your kids. Because again, it's no longer how to prevent ear infections, which I'm way into, or how to keep your baby from being overweight, but it's also how to increase your child's resilience, how to teach them emotional intelligence, how to teach them empathy. And so I just put myself on in the role of learning all sorts of different things uh, because of my, you know, my child, my children's uh, issues. I learned nutrition and, and then I learned homeopathics because of my husband's experience with cancer. It's as if your personal life has shaped your professional journey and your medical profession. Then out of all the topics and subjects you could have focused on, you decided to focus on the father role. And you wrote your first book, The Super Dad Formula. Is it a challenge or is there really a super dad formula? Well, I wrote this book, again, because of the changing social uh, environment. I mean, moms are working nowadays and, you know, like I said, nobody's going to love your baby the way you do and the way he does. So why not have the dads get, be more empowered, be more confident because over the years, dads are always telling me, I'm so afraid I'm going to break the baby. I'm going to wait until they're older to get involved. I say, no, 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 come here. I'm going to show you, you can hold them like this. You can hold them like that. You can hold them like this. Just don't shake them and don't drop them. The only two rules about it. But other than that, the baby loves your interaction. Plus your wife will love your interaction because she needs a break. And so I had a wonderful dad. My dad was always a very hands-on father. And that was a blessing to me because, you know, every woman needs a, a man in her life that she can trust without a shadow of the doubt and that you know how lucky are we that we have uh fathers that we can we can trust like that and those women who who didn't they can actually encourage their husbands to be those dads for their daughters so that they don't have to go through what they went through not having a supportive and a loving dad you see empowered proactive parents raise empowered healthy resilient children too many parents going to parenting thinking, you know, the mom is worried about the nine months of pregnancy and then the baby comes and it's like, oh my God, what am I going to do? And I was, I was one of those moms. I mean, I'm not judging. And I've dealt with mom after mom like that because, you know, you think the pregnancy is the be all and the end all, then the baby comes and everything will be perfect. 
and then you have the baby. So for me, if you can anticipate what the issues are, like you're not going to be able to sleep, plan for it with your husband. You're not going to be able to get the nutrition you need. Plan for it ahead of time. You're not, you need a new budget after the baby is born. Plan for it ahead of time. All these issues, lack of sleep, poor nutrition, money issues, the, the stress that gets put on the, on the relationship, the marriage relationship. You're tired, you feel ugly, you're all stretched out, you're swollen, you have the, the baby blues. You're not feeling attractive to your husband. Your husband is trying to get close to you. You don't want to be close to him. All you want him to do is leave you alone. And he's feeling like she doesn't love me anymore. And, you know, dads get, it's not really jealousy. What it is, is, is so where am I now in this whole thing? It's going to be baby and mom. And this way the dad doesn't have to feel like that. He's been involved in the pregnancy. He's been involved in the planning. And he can be involved from the moment the baby is born. And in fact, I'm doing a second edition of this book because I've actually, I, I'm in, in, in the second edition, I'm going to write about the importance of the dad in the first hour after birth. Wow. Because a lot of moms are born by, uh, babies are born by C-section and the mom might not be able to bond with the baby that first hour. Guess who, guess who can step up and do the bonding? And the reason, you know, attachment theory and bonding has become very important in parenting and in health, physical health, emotional health, and um, uh, mental health. The more close the bond is, this more it's called a secure bond. When the baby knows that my mother and my father are going to respond to me no matter what, they're going to be consistent. Yeah, every once in a while, mom's going to be grumpy. Every once in a while, dad's going to be grumpy. But if I can trust them, then the, the child will be physically healthier, emotionally healthier, will have better emotional IQ, and will have better, actually, social skills in the, in the future. Whereas a baby where it's inconsistent care, the mother maybe has postpartum depression. The father can step up and attached to this baby so it doesn't have to always be afraid. Who can I trust in the world? My mom's not there for me. She, she's barely hanging on. And that's not judgment of moms because I was there myself. What it is is you just need to get through the day. Who can, and you don't need the guilt of, oh my God, I can't take care of this baby or I don't love the baby the way I, I, I should or whatever. The dad can step up. He can help you and he can help the baby. And so I think that prepared parents are just a lot, everything goes much more easily. And studies are actually showing that now. You mentioned um, a sense of guilt. So let's address this uh, guilty feeling, a guilty feeling of working moms and stay-at-home mothers. The first one who often feel that they're not able to spend enough quality time with their kids. And the second ones who often feel that they lack the time or the opportunity to progress in their careers or to nurture their interest. So what's your advice to overcome this guilty feeling? Okay, I was a working mom. I actually stayed home with my children uh, till they were about four and five because I had a, a, a situation where the, the nanny abused my children. Oh. But we can talk about that in a later day. Mm -hmm. So I, I, know, I know what that's like to be a career woman and to be sitting home and that didn't help my postpartum depression at all. And so here's what I'm going to say. A happy mom raises a happy baby. So if working makes you happy, you go ahead and you work and you work at something you really, really love. And when you're at work, put all your focus on your work. And when you're at home, put all your focus on your baby. I wrote a few little questions because I don't like to just say that because it's nice and easy to say that. I actually like to give practical tips. So. One thing is, what are your rules for being a good mom? Do you have to spend 24-7 with your baby to be a good mom? Or can you actually spend, and studies prove this, can you spend one hour or two hours of focused time with your baby? Studies are showing that moms who stay home, a lot of times don't spend quality time with their children. They actually don't. And that working moms who put a plan, because planning, I'm sure you've seen this theme of mine about planning. You got to plan for spending time with your children. What are you going to do with them? 
You have time. You need to plan for when you're going to feed them. You need to plan for when they're going to sleep. You need to have a routine because a lot of moms, especially when the babies are little, are telling me, well, I'm, I feel guilty because I'm at work all day. I need to stay up all night with them in order to breastfeed them because I didn't spend all day with them. What happens is mom's hysterically tired. Baby's hysterically tired. Everybody is unhappy. Dad's unhappy. Mom's unhappy. And baby's unhappy. So instead of doing that, work on making routine. I always, I cooked on Sunday. That was my day for cooking. I would put it and I would freeze it. And yeah, maybe there wasn't a lot of variety, but before I started doing the cooking, I, I was eating out and I gained a lot of weight and I did not want that. Mm -hmm. And I thought if I'm gaining weight, what the heck am I doing to my children? Mm -hmm. So you, you plan for that. If you can't, you know, you plan for takeout, you plan your weekly uh, uh, meals, and then somebody can do it. If you have somebody to help you at home, you can ask your mother, you can ask your mother-in-law. Everybody's always asking you, how can I help? Or basically they're telling you what they're supposed to, telling you what you're supposed to do. You can turn it around and you can say, why don't you cook me three meals and put them in this nice container that I can freeze? Because I would really appreciate that. So in terms of a plan for sleeping, okay, your baby might not sleep through the night until they're between four and six months old. How do you do the sleep training? And that's one of the things I teach in this online course that I'm, that I'm putting together is how to teach your baby to sleep early on. Because you know, there's, four, there's four main pillars to sleeping through the night. If you follow those four main pillars, you can get a good sleeper, whether the baby is nursing or whether the baby is bottle fed but you got to know what you're doing. You know, if during that time, if you have to go back to work before your baby's sleeping through the night, who can you, can you and your husband take turns? Can you maybe, if he can't be up all uh, uh, at night, can you ask your mother or mother-in-law to spend a night or two where you can get some sleep? Can you take a nap? Maybe when you get home from work, a little power nap, you know, spend a little bit of bonding time with your baby and then take a power nap and then you can start up all over again because what's happening is mothers are trying to burn the candle from both ends and that doesn't work because there's nothing left for anybody. Um, and then watch what the rules are. Like I said, are the rules I've got to spend 24 seven with my kid? Who made that rule? Does that rule, does that rule fit you? Or can you change that rule too? I'm going to spend, let's say you have six hours before the baby goes, your child goes to sleep. How many hours of those are you going to spend with your child without the telephone, without the TV on, just quality time? And it doesn't have to all be fun. It can be, some of it can be creative time. Some of it can be learning time. Some of it can be reading time. You know, um, some of it can be time with you and dad. Some of it can be time with dad. Just do, do a little bit of planning ahead. Be self-compassionate. That's, that's my number one rule for all mothers. Too many of us have mom shame. You know, if we're breastfeeding, we should be bottle feeding or we're not doing it right. If we're bottle feeding, we should be breastfeeding. If we're letting our baby sleep through the night, oh my God, we're ashamed of that. If we're not, there's too much mom shame going on. And so, you know, turn off all these, these, these Facebook and Instagrams that the mothers are all perfect. No mother is perfect. And if they're telling you they're perfect, they're lying. And I can tell you from my personal experience. And in fact, when a mother would come into the office with her children looking perfect and clean and all groomed, I'd wonder what was going on there. I'd get a little bit worried. You know, you got to have a little bit of food on the, on the clothes. You know, stay connected to other moms that are working. You know, even if it's only for 10 minutes a day, you know, get on social media, make a phone call because you can help each other out. You know, what, what, what you don't know how to do, she might have actually solved, but she's ashamed to tell you that she's ashamed of something. You know, just you can be shame buddies for each other. You know, when you get to feeling that feeling of shame, you know, identify where you feel it in your body. What does it feel like? Is it like a flush? Is it like a, a, a knot in your heart? Is it a pain in your shoulder? And then this is based on Brene Brown. She's a shame researcher. You know, identify the shame in your body. And when you feel it, have a plan. Are you going to call a friend? Are you going to take deep breaths? Are you going to say something nice to yourself? Because self-compassion is, is tremendously important. And it's, it's what you're going to be teaching your kids. If you beat yourself up all, all the time, your daughter is going to learn to do that, and so is your son. But somehow sons are a little more, um, it bounces off of them more. Mm -hmm. Girls really learn these things from their mothers. 
And, you know, you probably learned it from your mother and your mother didn't do it on purpose. Your mother learned it from her mother. And I would like us to stop perpetuating these wounds by accident. Ask for help. You know, you need help, ask for help. You know, if you can't afford it, ask your friends. You know, can you come over and watch my baby and I'll watch your baby next week because my husband and I haven't had any time together in, in a month and we really need to work on our relationship. You know, ask for help. You might be surprised. This woman might have been waiting for somebody to, to, to be real and honest with her. So you gotta be careful. I mean, we all know the women in our lives that are very judgmental. That's not the person you're gonna ask because she's going to say, what do you mean? You want help? Huh? That's not the person you go to. You go to somebody that you know you have something in common with. So those are kind of little uh, rules the, 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 that I have. Because organization, planning, self-compassion, manage those feelings. You get those feelings. You know, like we talked about when we had our conversation the other day. If you, you know, how you manage your feeling, it's going to be how your child learns how to manage their feelings over the long run. Do you stuff it in or do you allow yourself to express your feelings in healthy ways? You know, like I teach kids how to pound their chest like a gorilla. What's wrong with pounding your chest like a gorilla? Screaming into a pillow, taking a walk, but write your feelings down and then tear them up, sing them out, stomp them out. You know, because if you don't deal with your emotions within yourself, it will show up in your care with your child or in your husband or in your work. Well, learning how to deal with emotions is a starting point to deal with anxiety or mental health, which have raised even more to surface during these past months of pandemic. What can we do when these affects our children? I know you're writing about it now. It's called treating anxiety naturally in children. But as you learn how to do that in children, you're actually learning how to do that for yourself because you're your child's role model. And whether you think you are or not, if you are sitting in the car and somebody cuts you off in traffic and you say something like, nobody respects me, my life is not good, what does is, what is that child learn? That's what that child is learning, that nobody respects you and they won't respect me. If they don't respect my mom, they're not going to respect me. So they learn that. Maybe what you could say instead, because that's like an empathetic response is, I wonder what's going on with that person that they're driving so badly. And, and, and let go of the guilt. The guilt isn't doing anything good for you. The guilt just makes you not discipline your children very well. It makes you not deal with your emotions very well. It makes you not help them deal with their emotions very well either. But the book on anxiety I wrote talks about uh, it's a holistic approach to anxiety because anxiety can be caused by poor nutrition. It can be caused by sleep and sleep problems. It can be caused by lack of exercise. It can be caused by too much screen time, too much television time. It can be caused by lack of interaction with other people. It can be caused by things. We were just talking about how you learn your beliefs from your parents. So it can be because what happens is your thoughts create your emotions. And what most people don't realize is there a lot of us as adults are thinking thoughts that our moms or our dads or a mean teacher or somebody negative planted in our brains. And we need to find out, you know, like when you're not feeling good, and this is what I tell parents to coach children through called emotional coaching. When you notice your child isn't feeling good, you want to ask them, well, you know, first off, to identify their feeling and acknowledge it. Give them feeling words if they're younger children. And then, um, you know, then as they get older, what is the thought that you're thinking right now that's making you feel like that? Because nobody's beaming thoughts into your head. You're thinking your thoughts. Why don't you change that thought? Let's think together how we can change that thought. You know, first off, if you need to feel angry or sad, go ahead for a few minutes and show them ways to deal with that. They can do deep breathing. They can do, you know, like I said, writing and tearing it up. They can do dancing. They can do stomping. Uh, you know, I, I like all those because they're physical and children are, they can do some push-ups. They can do some, uh, what do they call those? Uh, jumping jacks. All those, they actually lower your anxiety and stress levels because any negative emotion gets our stress response going. It raises our adrenaline. It raises our cortisol. So physiologically, you can actually just help the body get rid of all that angst. And then you can say, okay, well, what are we, how are we going to feel better? And usually in order to feel better, we need to think a different thought. 
So what, what thought are you thinking right now? Well, I feel like I'm helpless and hopeless. Okay. You can engage with that and say, oh, no, you're not helpless and hopeless. But then you're not acknowledging the child's feeling, are you? I see that you're feeling helpless and hopeless. But do you remember last week when such and such happened and you did this and it was so great? Do you remember when, you know, you, you help them think about the successes of the past? Or you can tell that you can, you can use facts. Maybe you think you're helpless, but remember how you did this and that? And they start remembering the positive because as parents, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, there are not going to be enough psychiatrists and psychologists to deal with all the problems that are happening in the world nowadays. And so teaching parents cognitive behavioral psychology, which means you change the thoughts and you change the behavior. And so the feelings change. And that's actually one of the things I wrote about in my book. So I need to get, get it edited and get it out there. Is moms are the best cognitive behavioral therapists in the world because we trust our mommies no matter what. And so, you know, teach them how to look at solutions. Okay, you don't feel good right now. And maybe that didn't feel really good. And I, I'm, I'm sorry about that. How can I help you, you know, process this emotion? And then after they processed it for a little bit, because again, you don't want to tell, the worst thing you can do to a person is say, don't feel like that. Because you see, right? I mean, how would you, when, when you're angry and somebody says you shouldn't feel angry, doesn't that just make your blood boil? Yeah. Right? You got angry by just saying that. So what you're going to say is, I see you're angry. Okay. How can you express it in a positive way? Do you want to write a letter or tear it up? Do you want to, you know, you want to play act with me? I'm that person who made you so angry. You want to talk to me? We can, we can, we can role play. And then once they're done, next time this happens, how do you think that maybe you can make yourself feel better? Do you want to walk away before they say that? Do you want to take deep breaths? Do you want to have a positive sentence you're saying in your brain? Because this, this actually works with bullying. I'm trying to answer a lot of questions in one go because of, of the time constraints that we have. I know, you know what I mean? So with bullying, you, you, you strengthen your child, you make them more resilient, you teach them, you show them, okay, that lady in the store was really rude to me and I feel angry about it and I'm going to stomp my feet. Now, maybe, or, or that lady in the store was very mean to me. I wonder if her husband was mean to her today. I wonder if her child is sick. I wonder if she has a backache. You see, you're teaching empathy. And that's one of the things you can teach with bullying too, is you know, it has nothing to do with you because what you're essentially telling your child when you're saying that woman has her own problems is the thing that that person did has nothing to do with me personally. And it has everything to do with them, you see? So with bullying, for instance, or with handling any emotions, you want to strengthen the child. You want to give them ways to deal with their negative emotions because you don't want that kid to hit the bully. That might just make things worse. You want them to be able to say, this has nothing to do with me. I am empowered. I'm going to take three deep breaths. I'm going to tell myself I'm worth it. I'm going to stand up straight and I'm going to walk away, not because I'm weak, but because I'm strong. Because I don't let anybody tell me who I am or what I am in this world. You see? And that's, and, and what they learn is, you know, when they watch you doing it, that's how they learn it. And then you practice, you know, one, I have a whole chapter in that book dedicated to what are the signs of anxiety? Cause parents don't recognize them. A lot of doctors don't recognize them. You know, a kid that comes to you and says, Oh, my back is hurting and there's nothing wrong with them might actually be dealing with anxiety or depression or a problem. It's called somatization. It's a problem that they just can't deal with or don't know how to deal with. So it's a heck of a lot better to go to mom and say, I have a backache and take a Tylenol than it is to say, I feel hopeless and helpless and, 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 and I don't know what to do. So it's really important to communicate with kids nowadays. You need to listen too, because a lot of times what happens is we, they, they say, I feel so-and-so and we jump in with judgment. Oh, you shouldn't feel like that. Or, oh no, that's not true. Again, like we talked about, don't tell them how they feel. Listen, because if you don't listen that first time or that second time, 
they're never going to talk to you again. And they're going to turn to other things to start feeling better. And who better than you? And then learn ways to manage your own emotions in positive ways so that you can teach them. You know, show them how you manage your emotions in positive ways. Give them jobs around the house. Children really need to learn responsibility. And I don't care if you have two Filipinas and a girl from Uganda. Your children need to know how to do laundry. They need to learn how to cook. They need to learn because it's not just about learning those, those physical skills. It's actually about mattering in the family. You know, if you don't keep your room clean, it, 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 the whole house doesn't feel right. If you don't sweep that little square, because you can even have a, you can teach a three-year-old. They're little, you know, they're always running after you, trying to help you with housework. Give them that square. And let them feel that they're part of the team of the family, which is the team that works together. And every, every part of that family has a function. Because if you're sitting around, you wake up in the morning, you don't go to school, you don't have anything to do, give them a job. Because, you know, my kids went to college. They both knew how to cook. They both knew how to clean. My son better than my son, my daughter, actually. <laughs> Because she just was a mitzvah, unfortunately, she's like me. But you know what? I, but they knew how to do it, and they never needed to feel like they were hopeless and helpless. Make a schedule for them. Have time, especially if you're like a working mom, but you're working at home. Make a schedule for your day. This is my work time, and tell them this is my work time. Let's think about things you can do during my work time that will keep you entertained. Bring them into the solution. Then from this time to this time, and you can put it up on the wall, from this time to this time, we're going to have playtime. And it's going to be creative playtime. Maybe we'll play dress up. Maybe we'll play with glitter, you know, depending on the age of the child. If they're an older child, maybe we'll make up poems. Maybe we'll make up songs. Maybe we'll make up a, a play about how hard it is to, you know, watch what's going on in Palestine. And here's a way to make the children feel like we empathize with them. And here's some solutions for them. You know what I mean? Because children like to feel like they matter too. And then from this time to this time, we're going to eat. And you're going to help me cook and you're going to help me clean. Because a lot of times, especially with teenagers, they don't want to talk to you when you're face to face with them. School age children will talk to you. Teenagers won't. You got to get your teenager involved in something where you're parallel working. And then, you know, throw out a question or, oh, you're really cutting that, that uh, tomato really, really nicely. You have such good knife skills, you know, and then slowly you will get them to feel more comfortable. And then if they don't have to make eye contact with you, they'll actually tell you what's going on. And once they tell you what's going on, you have your key. Because then again, you're not going to say, don't feel like that. What you're going to say is, I, I, you know, I feel like that too, because our children are feeling just the way we are. I mean, I am, I was, I was, uh, I prepared this long thing about, you know, COVID and anxiety. And it's like, I have, I feel like that too. They don't feel any different. You know, my eating is different. My sleeping is different. I'm more irritable. I'm getting bored more easily. So, you know, and then part of the schedule should be making them get in contact with their friends. You know, too much screen time isn't good. But screen time when you're doing social, like not social media, because actually I did some research on that. Maybe we can do a whole show about that because what I found was kind of interesting. I was very, I didn't expect what I was going to find. Um, but not social media. That's actually does, is not good. The screen time on that, but like talking on the telephone, Zoom, like we're doing right now, you know let them contact their friends even if it's just for a few minutes every other day and schedule that into the schedule have time for if you can go outdoors go outdoors and go outdoors with them because you're not getting enough exercise either if if it's a bad day or it's 55 degrees outside and you can't go outdoors schedule some indoor stuff you can do some yoga you can do push-ups i mean i there's this nike uh app that i that i downloaded that has some really hard workouts in 20 minutes I mean, you can really get a buff body when you're doing that, you know? So teach your children that there's a solution for every problem. And, and, and this way they will be. In Davos, about seven or eight years ago, they said that people are going to be replaceable by machines in the next 20 or 30 years. And their solution, do you know what their solution for, for that was? Teaching children to play. 
play, literally play. And they actually have a thing going on in, in America right now because they were taking away playtime and they were replacing it with I, you know, academic work time. And they said, a machine can do those calculations, but a machine can't learn, can't be creative, at least not so far. And the way children learn, first off, play is time for bonding with you. Play is time for, for it, it actually relaxes children. It teaches them how to play as a team. It teaches them to follow rules. It teaches them to be a leader one minute and then a follower the next. And we all need that sometimes. We can't always be the big leader, even though I want to be the big leader all the time. Um, and it teaches creativity because Sarah might not like what Ahmed does. She can either beat him over the head or they can figure out a solution together, you know, compromise and talking and, and things like that. So always put in playtime. And like I said, have creative time where you're doing something. And play is, 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 the definition of play is something you do just because you can and because it makes you happy and because you lose time when you're doing it. As the children get older, it's good to play with board games because there's rules that you need to follow. And those are things that, that, that are important for them to learn, you know? And, and so through doing your schedule every day, you're actually teaching them things that they're not learning in school, that they're not gonna learn in school because you know your child better than anybody else. Think about the, the expansion. Think about the bonding that you had. Think about the joy that you have and think about the memories you made because you know my kids now are 27 and 28 and we have memories. You know, we never talk about the iPod that I bought them or the whatever gaming thing because I didn't they didn't even have those back then and I wouldn't have got it anyway. They never talk about the dress I bought or the shoe. Well, sometimes we talk about the shoes because my son, it's a silly story. He bought these big red uh, Nikes. They were high tops. And I said, Cam, nobody's going to like those. They're going to make fun of you because we were in a small town and you know, and he said, no, no, I love them. And they're popular and everybody in the big cities are right. Okay. He took, he went to school with them once. And then they went into a box under his bed, never to be seen again. What happened that day at school? Uh, he wouldn't tell me, but my daughter did. Mm. They made fun of him. And so they went under, under the thing. But that's one of the things when I really, when he's ignoring me and I need to get his attention. And this is what I tell parents of teenagers. You know, poke at them a little. I mean, any reaction is better than no reaction. So you have to poke at them and get them to, to fight with you. That's better than totally ignoring you because kids tend to withdraw when they're depressed. They tend to withdraw when they're anxious. They Like somebody asked about cyberbullying, the symptoms of anxiety that we talked about are the same as the symptoms of cyberbullying. Mm -hmm. So when you're aware that changes in behavior are important, and, and withdrawal is one of the worst ones because you don't you you can't help them they can't help themselves and they're stuck in this spiral that, that can go down and down and down so even if you have to go fight with them uh, like I would go in and say to him every once in a while where are those red shoes oh my god it was like I was poking him in the eye with a needle but you know now we laugh about it I say to him remember those red shoes he says mom aren't you ever going to give that up and I say no well, it shows that moms know best. Moms are always right. But are we always right? You know, moms, we do the best we can. We have to forgive ourselves. We do the best we can. I tried before the conscious parenting movement was available. I tried to parent my children consciously because I remember when my children were two and a half or three years old. And some things my mother used to say that made me feel bad fell out of my mouth. And I said, oh my God. That is just not going to work for me. I am not going to, I don't want my children to feel the way I felt. And so I started to do it that way. And it seems the movement has caught on. Mm -hmm. I didn't lead it, but in my own little way, in my own little house, I was part of it. Because, you know, when, when, when you're aware and, 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 and dads really love this. I had a, a teenage kid come in and his father and he were fighting terribly. And I took the dad aside. The, dad, the, the, the teenager told me his side of the story. The dad told me his side of the story. So I took the dad aside. I said, did anybody ever talk to you like that when you were young? He said, yeah, my dad. And I said, how did that make you feel? 
He said, terrible. I said, how do you think that's making your child feel? He said, terrible. He went and he apologized to his son. And now they're the best of friends. Mm -hmm. You just have to be aware of what you're doing. And you have to be, you have to commit to trying. And you're not always going to be successful. And that's what I want moms to come out of this with. You're not always going to be successful. Sometimes your mother's words are going to fall out of your mouth. In which case, if they're really bad, you apologize and you you tell your child and then you move on and you say, moving forward, if I say something like this, I want you to walk away or I want you to make like something like this because our children can help us learn. Absolutely. And there's always so much more than we can learn. So what are the most important takeaways, the most important learnings for us as parents and for our children? These are the rules that you follow. If you learn how to be kind to yourself, if you learn empathy, if you learn compassion, if you learn to work as a team, if you if you and, and, and your husband work on the relationship skills that we all need, like active listening, um, right, give and take, then they'll become second nature to you as you raise your children, you see? And I think that the marriage, before you even have babies or that those nine months of pregnancy, are a great practicing ground for self-care, for care of your relationship. Some of the most popular things on my Instagram are um, caring for the marriage relationship. I'm sharing 23 habits of a happy marriage. But I get a lot of people interested in that because it's really important. You know, your marriage is uh, has a direct effect on the health of your child, mentally, emotionally, and physically, physically. And that's what people don't realize. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm trying to do is raise awareness. And if hopefully if, if I we shared a lot, a lot of information today. I really love it. If you're listeners, I don't know if you have like an interactive comment, but if they share one or two things that they found the most helpful so that, you know, I can make sure that I always talk about those, you know, what, and and if they write it down, you see, if you write down what you're planning on doing, you're more likely to do it and it'll hold them accountable. If they say, I'm going to start practicing deep breathing, or I'm going to do so-and-so, it's written down somewhere and they're much more likely to follow it. And then I'll know that, you know, you and I made a difference in somebody's life today. And that's really what it's all about is leaving the world a better place than you, you came into. That's what we're here for, to make a difference. Or at least we're committed to trying, as you said earlier, one podcast at a time, one story at a time, one advice at a time. So before we wrap up, tell us what are the signs that as parents we should look out for when we feel that there's something wrong. Change in behavior. And and I'm talking about eating behavior, sleeping behavior, you know, not wanting to do the things they normally like to do. And, ch- and young children whining and throwing temper tantrum after temper tantrum in older children withdrawal, uh, going into their room, um, not wanting to use the things that normally make them happy. Um, sometimes becoming more aggressive, you know, because anxiety and depression, I write about in, in the super dead book, I write about a paternal or father anxiety, uh, uh, postpartum depression because, um, 25 to 50% of fathers whose wives have postpartum depression actually have postpartum depression, but it's not diagnosed. And the reason it's not diagnosed is is it looks different than, you know, not eating and not sleeping. It shows up as anger. It shows up as aggression. It shows up as uh, not wanting to come home. You know, I, I, I just can't handle it. And because they feel like they're, A, there should be no attention on them. B, they can't, they don't know what they're, what they're feeling and men don't do feelings. And C, it's like, I'm not a man because I need help. You see, so it's really important to look at things like that in a teenager because the symptoms of anger, aggression, um, you know, withdrawal from things that they care using, using, Drugs, obviously, are easy, but even cigarettes, you know, using any material that could, you know, to, to help them feel better, abusing any, any substance. 
You can abuse food. I mean, that's what anorexia nervosa is all about. You refuse to eat or bulimia where you binge eat and then you vomit. But basically trust your gut. As a parent, trust your gut. There's a lot you can do at home as an empowered, proactive, smart mama. And I don't want you to have to go to a doctor and be reliant on a doctor for things that you, you can do at home too. Because you're a better doctor to your kids than, than a doctor who doesn't know them. Plus, there's going to be a whole lot of people needing these mental health services. And who better than you? You're there. You're going to be there when your child has a panic attack. You're going to be there when your child has a, um, a nightmare. You don't need, need to say, oh, my God, I, we have to wait to deal with this nightmare until we go to the therapist in two and a half weeks. You need the tools that will help you help them. And that's what our conversation was about, to provide some first tips and tools and to show that whatever we're going through, whatever you're going through, you're not alone. You're always entitled to ask for help. There are people who care, people like Dr. Linda. And we can see, we can hear, and we can feel how much you care. You generally deeply care. And I don't want anybody ever to feel as helpless and hopeless as I felt at certain times in my life. And I have the tools to help them not to do that. And the last message I want to leave you guys with is everybody's looking for this big answer. And a lot of times the answer to the problem is tiny little changes in different areas of health. Like in the physical health, I always say that health is made up of physical health, mental health, emotional health, and the health of the environment. And the environment is made up of the marriage of the mom and the dad, the individual health of the mom and the dad and the parenting style of the mom and the dad. And a lot of times, a little tweak in sleep, a little tweak in diet, a little tweak in exercise, a little tweak in how we think and how we manage our emotions and a little tweak in how we parent the kid. It's way more effective than an antidepressant. For Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Linda. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for sharing so many precious advices, tips and tools. You've been truly helpful, truly unlimited, which actually reminds me that I nearly forgot to ask you what we call our paramount question. What does unlimited mean to you? Unlimited means that I never, ever have to tell anybody there's nothing they can do. Thank you. Thank you so much. And there's so much more than I could ask you. There are so many more topics that we could cover that I would love to have you back on the show. I would love to have you back on Unlimited. And I actually encourage our listeners to share any concerns that they might have, to share and send any question that they might want to ask you, um, both through our social media pages, so either Unlimited or Ask Dr. Linda, so we can come back and continue to offer whatever support we can. Thank you. And I want to remind the moms, if they've been brave enough to listen this long, write down in your podcast comments what their next action steps are, because I would love to see, really love to see, and I'd like to encourage you and, you know, what is that word, cheerlead you on. Because we all, you know, we're all in this together. And when one of us rises, we all rise together. So let's make this movement. So we're rising up. Thank you for listening. We hope you found it inspiring and fulfilling. Please subscribe to Unlimited on your favorite podcast app so you won't miss out on our next stories. To learn more about our content, please log on to our website and follow us at unlimited.me on Instagram. Facebook or Twitter and help us building a truly unlimited community. Thank you.